Well, good evening, everybody. We are thinking about holiness today, and we shall be continuing that meditation this evening from the book of Leviticus. So if you would like to follow along, please open your Bible to Leviticus chapter 11. We will be looking at verse 45 together. And while you turn there, let us ask for the Lord's blessing on this word. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that tells us of difficult things sometimes. So we pray for your spirit to grant us understanding and to strengthen us for obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our verse reads, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Well, our verse presents to us a command. As we consider this command together, our time will be framed out by the following steps. First, I want to start by laying out the context briefly. And secondly, we will look at what holy means, and then specifically what the command implicates for us as Christians today. The remainder of our time will then be spent asking three questions of our text that will help encourage us as we pursue this command. So where do we find ourselves in redemption history? Well, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Genesis and Exodus are the ones that come before it. And Genesis gives the account of the creation of all things by the powerful word of God. In it, we see the original design and purpose of humankind and their relationship to God, a personal and unhindered relationship. Genesis also tells us how that relationship was broken and how we were separated from God. But thanks be to God. Because Genesis also begins the great narrative of God's intention to restore that relationship with mankind and to reestablish their purpose. The main protagonist in this plan is Abraham, from whom a people group is produced, who will become the backdrop through whom God will fulfill this plan. And by the end of the book, this line of people are basically one family, the children of Jacob, who are temporarily settled in Egypt. Exodus picks up many years later when the children of Jacob have multiplied and become a nation group themselves known as Israel, though they are without their own land. In fact, they are still in Egypt and subjected there, enslaved as a labor force. Exodus is the account of how God frees them from Egypt and leads them to a land that will be their own. And perhaps the most remarkable thing about Exodus is the graciousness of God and how he draws near and lives among them as their God in the tabernacle or tent, a precursor to the temple that comes later. The book literally ends with God's spirit filling the tabernacle. So you have a people group called by God, of all, the God of all creation, into communion with himself. But here now is the problem. God is pure, righteous, and holy. People however, even chosen Israel, are full of sin. And how is this impasse reconciled? Well, that is the purpose of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book of worship. It gives the instruction of what the Israelites could do so that they could draw near to the holy God in the tabernacle. It is full of what sometimes seem like strange laws to us, like with the laws about clean and unclean animals in chapter 11, where we find ourselves this evening. 
But all these laws, aside from some of the obvious good, have a design. And their purpose is to teach. They teach the people something about who they are and about what God's purpose is for them. In our verse this evening, God states clearly that an intent that he has for his chosen people is that they should be holy because he is holy. So what does holy mean? Well, the way I understand it and would summarize it for you is that there are basically two groups of the definition of the word. On the one hand, it means to be separated or set apart, often to be consecrated or dedicated to God in service to him. And on the other hand, it means to be spiritually pure, untainted by sin, perfect in goodness and righteousness. So what does the word imply here in the command in our verse? Well, given the context of the book and even the immediate context of making a distinction between clean and unclean animals, it would appear that the first definition of, is what is primarily in mind, that is to be set apart, as the Lord puts it more explicitly in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, he says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. This, I think, makes the, intent, the intended meaning plain. However, we might quickly recognize that there's a contingent relationship between these definitions. Failure to separate and failure to make distinctions will lead to defilement and impurity. And by this, I mean something other than eating foods or other superficial distinctions. Failure to understand how to separate yourselves from unholy things will result in moral impurities that will separate you and hinder your relationship from a holy God. Therefore, to be holy means to make distinctions and to separate yourself from that which defiles and hinders your fellowship with the Lord and his people. It also entails that, which, that we ought to pursue what fosters purity and prioritizes the Lord and his people. So what does this imply for Christians today? Well, even though we are not Israel in the proper sense, we are the intended outcome, though, of what Israel typified in the Old Testament. And the apostles and teachers of the New Testament picked up this topic of holiness and of consecration in many places, such as in 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 through 16, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 21 through 22, and 1 John 3, 3 through 6, and many other places. Also with Paul, when he's implied in the illustrations of putting off the old self and putting on the new self that is in Christ. The implication is this. The command still stands in its intended sense for us today. So how are we doing, church, in our pursuit of holiness? Are we consciously making the efforts to discipline ourselves in godly practices and choices? Or does our heart balk at that suggestion as legalistic and does it smell like self-righteousness? Well, indeed, these can be liabilities of seeking a pious life. Surely it's not unexpected that the devil would seek any means to waylay those who strive to make their calling and election sure. But besides that, if truth be told, we abound in thoughts of self-justification even without the effort to live a holy life. Is it not true that if we did the math, 
The grand sum of our waking hours might be seen as resisting holiness more than pursuing it. And why is it that so? Do we doubt the goodness of God? Do his laws seem arbitrary and vindictive, resulting in nothing but a philosophy of joylessness? And do we doubt, as Christians, that we are actually drawing near the divine and eternal, concepts so far removed from our grasp and understanding that they are mere empty words in our discourses? Or perhaps we are weak in our walk because we have still yet to come to grips with the sheer depth of our depravity and sinfulness. Brothers and sisters, let these things not be said of us. To help us then, I want to use our remaining time to ask three questions that arise from our text. Three questions that we can use by way of encouragement to spur us on to take seriously the command to be holy. And by these may God work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So first question, what has God saved you from? Well, we do well to periodically ask ourselves this question, what indeed has God saved you from? In our text this evening, the Lord reminds Israel that he has brought them up out of the land of Egypt. As mentioned earlier in our brief summary, Egypt had become the land of enslavement for the Israelites. And this was no small thing. They had spent 400 years there from when they first arrived. Those who were alive at their rescue had known no other way of life. Their abilities were shaped and fashioned to serve their Egyptian masters. Their worship and their understanding of the divine were perverted and twisted after the polytheistic bent of the surrounding culture. They would, not, they would have been largely ignorant of the Lord and his purposes for them. Indeed, any suggestion to leave Egypt would have seemed impossible to them as they were mired in a hopelessness that's similar to the cycle of hopelessness we see in homeless people of our day. This was bondage with no hope of escape and not even the inkling of a desire to do so. Egypt and life in Egypt was all that they knew. Well, Christian, this is where you were. Actually, it's even worse than described. The Bible calls where you were the kingdom of darkness. Its prince is the devil and its taskmaster is the power of sin. In that domain, sin has dominion over you a power you are unable to overcome, nor even a desire to resist. Every vile suggestion in that place is met with acceptance and a positive glee to see it done. Sordid ideas are considered fruitful endeavors, and the citizens of that land eat it without hesitation. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander are the dialects of the people there. This is the city of destruction, and against it the wrath of God is coming. And when he breaks upon it, it will burn. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom of darkness will be forever known as the outer darkness, forever away from the grace of God. From this place, Christian, you have been saved. God has rescued you from such a putrid puddle. You once walked in these ways. Such were some of you. But what does the word say now? You have been washed and you have been sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So having come so far, brother and sister, would you become like the dog who returns to its vomit? Let the memory of your former life be one great motivator to pursue a holy life now, to separate yourselves from those vices and appetites and ways of thinking 
that you once relished. Our second question is to ask, how has God saved you? Well, as we return to our text in Leviticus, it says that the Lord has brought them up out of the land of Egypt. We have already considered the vileness of the enslavement we once found ourselves under and considered the grace which is ours, having been rescued from such a place. But let us now take a moment to consider what it took to be brought up and out of such a place. In the Old Testament account, it took nothing short of the miraculous working of God the Creator himself to do this. Through Moses and Aaron, he had to overcome otherwise impossible barriers. It was necessary for God to tear down the hard and impenitent heart of Pharaoh to release the Israelites. He had to prevail over the magicians and deities that held such a controlling influence over the mindsets of the people. He had to display his power in unexpected ways to show that he is really Lord of all. And God's mighty works were not only to provide deliverance from their oppressors, but in his grace he also provided mightily for their safe passage through the waters and through the wilderness. And he did all this while the people were that he was rescuing complained against him and resisted him. Does this sound familiar, Christian? Does it resonate with the degree that God had to intervene in your own head and heart to deliver you? Was your heart not as hard as Pharaoh's and as opposed to the commands of God? Were you not ensnared with the empty philosophies of the world such that any suggestion of submission to the one true God made you indignant? But he won you over because even against your deepest wishes to the contrary, he installed in you a new heart and gave your eyes to see the wonders of his deliverance in Jesus Christ. And here we see in Jesus that in order to save us, God had to endure something even more severe than what we have already considered. He had to do something even more inexplicable than mighty signs and wonders. He had to relinquish his son, Jesus Christ, to be the price he would pay to save us from our sin. And Jesus, in willing agreement with the Father, accepted the conditions it would take to redeem us. Jesus would set aside his glory and empty himself of his divine rights and take the form of a servant and be born in the likeness of man, a mere baby to start with, subject to sinful parents. And he would walk in perfect obedience to not only the moral law of his father, but also in the Mosaic law of the people, subject to corrupt priests and those who would twist that law. And he would be the true son of Abraham, true Israel, with a true claim to be their king. And yet they did not receive him as their own. Instead, they killed him. And while he hung on a cross, counted as a transgressor, he bore the wrath of the Father against all the sins of those who from the foundation of the earth were to be called by his name. And he carried those sins to his death. This is how God has saved you, Christian. And sinner, this is what it takes to save you too. This is the price. And either you will pay it, or you can turn to Christ and plead his payment will be counted as yours. And you can believe this is true because God has said it is so. Confess your sins and he will show himself faithful and just to forgive you of them and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Friends, can we trample on such a ransom note? Would we dare to value the lengths that God has taken to save us and then turn away and continue in our old way of living? Should we have any entangling participation with those who mock Jesus, 
who thinks his sacrifice is foolish. Here indeed is the great motivator for our hearts. Jesus has truly and fully released us of our obligation to our debts so that we might freely pursue the things of his kingdom. Lastly, what has God saved you for? Look at our text. Look at our text one last time. It says that the Lord brought them up out of the land of Egypt to be their God. The Israelites were not a special people in and of themselves. They were special only because the Lord set his love upon them. In fact, the Lord periodically called them stiff-necked, and it didn't even take them long after their rescue to quickly turn from God and to make themselves idols in the golden calf fiasco. But despite all this, God went to great lengths and great costs to liberate these people that they might worship him, that they might now have communion with him and be in fellowship with him. Christian, this is the purpose of your salvation too. God has not saved you because of anything good in you. If anything, this evening should have reminded you that you did not deserve the grace of God. Instead, you see you actually deserve his righteous justice against your sins. But instead, he has gone to great lengths to rescue you. And this is so that he would be your God, that you might call Jesus your king and enjoy him forever in the kingdom he has received and is building. He is your great benefactor, and he has swept you out of the gutter and placed you in his household, filled with glories you had never known possible. Should you not now live according to the rules of your kind master? These rules reflect his good character, and our conduct should reflect that good character. Will you not now repudiate all that would bring his good name into disrepute? Therefore, church, let us no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ways. Rather, let us become clean vessels that are fit for honorable use and that are useful to our God. Let us not underestimate Christ and his labors works on our behalf. Rather, may he receive the reward for his sacrifice, a people filled with the eternal joy of their salvation. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit who has, given us as, who has been given to us as a seal of our inheritance. Rather, may he lead us easily and willingly as we walk in him. Let us pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, the extent of redemption baffles us. We could never think of this, nor could we understand it if you had not told it to us in your word. So we ask, Lord, that you will continue to transform our minds by the renewing of it through the preaching of your word and the reading of it and the praying of it and the talking about it with each other. Teach us to be wise, to discern what, is will, what your will is in all the areas of our lives, that we might refrain from that which is unpleasing and counter to your good name. Purify us that we might be presented spotless and blameless on the day when Jesus returns. For his sake we pray. Amen.